This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Troy Senek, a former speechwriter to President George W. Bush and co-founder of the digital media company Kite and Key. Troy is the author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbably Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Roger and Troy discussed Grover Cleveland, the only president thus far to serve two non-consecutive terms in office as both America's 22nd and 24th president. Troy Senek, welcome to the show. Roger, delighted to be here with you. Well, you are the author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life of an Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland, uh, coming out here in September 2022. Congratulations on this really excellent work and for making a president super interesting that going into reading the book, I to be honest, was most interested in how he became president for two terms, but having uh, four years between the first term and the second term. Troy, tell us how you, uh, accomplished writer and speech writer and uh, served in the the Bush 43 administration, decided to write about Grover Cleveland. Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of people suppose when they hear about this book that this is written in reaction to the potential tie-in of Donald Trump pursuing non-consecutive terms. Um, The book was actually conceived of well before that prospect was on the horizon. This book was about three, three and a half years in the writing. And the reason that I thought Cleveland's story was worth telling, there are a few of them actually. One is, uh, if you look through the history of the American presidency, 45 men have had this job. Cleveland's the one who throws off the numbering, of course, because he's both 22 and 24. So you have to subtract one from whatever the present number is. Uh, Of those 45, only 14 have served a full eight years, less than a third. And the people on on this list, if we were to go through them, uh, are the household names amongst American presidents, with almost the single exception of Grover Cleveland. So for one thing, I thought it was just strange as a matter of historical hygiene that this figure is not better known. But there are a couple of other reasons. Number two is, if you are somebody who is sympathetic to what we could call the classical liberalism of Grover Cleveland, something that most Ronald Reagan fans would be pretty sympathetic to, this is a limited government, constitutionalist, laissez-faire for the most part individual. This is a guy you're going to like, and this is a guy who has been mostly forgotten by history. In many ways, I was trying to do the same thing that Amity Schles did when she wrote her biography of Calvin Coolidge, (laughs) to resurrect a figure who deserves to be better known amongst people who believe in these principles. But finally, even if you don't agree, even if you find Cleveland loathsome when it comes to matters of public policy, the thing that I think is so interesting about him He has this meteoric rise. If you find Grover Cleveland in the year 1881, he is 44 years old that year. He is a basically anonymous lawyer in Buffalo. And within three years, he's the president of the United States, goes mayor of Buffalo, governor of New York, the White House. And the reason that this happened so quickly is because he was seen as this figure with rigorous integrity in an era of political corruption. And one of the reasons that I think his example is so valuable today is that his career is a rebuke 
to political cynicism. He is the kind of president that we say all the time we want, someone who will do what he thinks is right, even if it comes at a great political cost. And it does really throughout his career, in many cases, come at a significant political cost. I want to end or start with where you ended um, this, uh, this person of integrity and countering Tammany Hall and the really this kind of corrosive politics that define the Gilded Age. And then you have this figure in the Democratic Party who right, has, has just this kind of moral force. And not only that, but gets elected twice, gets a popular vote three times, as, as you, you point out. Um, there, there's one quote in there, I, I struggled to find the page, but he says a point that it's people are wrong if they say there's no political force in a moral idea, meaning that Cleveland believed that you could have a moral plank, you could have scruples in elected office, and actually that element of your approach could get you elected, that it has uh, kind of political force. Troy, tell us more about that. You, you obviously highlight it throughout. I mean, it's really some of the defining qualities you just stated. Is, is that anachronistic? Is that a feature of, of the 19th century? Or is that an element that perhaps you think uh, can still be true in, in, in our democracy today? I think very much that it can still be true in our democracy today. I mean, I think this is sort of the genius of the American system is that it does tend to yield correctives. When you look at the progression through the history of the American presidency, nine times out of 10, the new guy is brought in to correct for some deficiency of the old guy. And if the politics of the moment feel a bit cynical or a bit dire as they do now, I think there's no reason that a figure like Grover Cleveland embodying these kinds of principles uh, couldn't be produced by the political system again. But you're, you're quite right to point out that this was central to his conception of the presidency. Um, Woodrow Wilson, writing in his capacity as a scholar, this is before he was president, said that Cleveland's calculations were unintelligible for normal politicians simply because he wasn't making calculations. He was doing the thing that he thought was right. Now, we should point out one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to not only demonstrate for people that a figure like this can't rise through American politics, but also that there's a bit of a monkey's paw situation here. You have to be careful what you wish for, because when you get a figure like this, he leaves a lot of damage in his way. There is a trend that you see throughout Cleveland's career. He's in his stints in lower office. He's there very briefly. He's the mayor of Buffalo for only a year. He's the governor of New York for only two before getting to the presidency. And consistently what happens because of this integrity, uh, he is getting on the wrong side of his fellow Democrats just as often as he's getting on the wrong side of Republicans. So there is there is damage that is left in his wake. He is splitting his party throughout this process. And that was important, I thought, to convey to the reader because I wanted to under, them to understand this principle. Uh, a good man is hard to take sometimes, as a famous lecture about Cleveland has it. This kind of emphasis on integrity can make a lot of enemies along the way, and it certainly did for him. Interesting. You remind me, as you, you describe that element, that feature of Cleveland, how he had troubles within his own party because of his principle and unyielding, uncompromising. Remind me of Theodore Roosevelt, which, of yeah. course, when 
Cleveland is governor of New York and rising like, you know, a rocket. There's also Theodore Roosevelt, who's actually just behind him on a similar trajectory. And in some respects, Troy, playing a similar game, although I, I was saying game, I'm suggesting I'm being cynical about it, by taking the same approach, a principled approach of making enemies within his own party. And, and, and Theodore Roosevelt famously alienated Republicans in the Assembly in New York, and I think on an occasion or two had common cause with, with Governor Cleveland. Were those two uh, kind of spirits aligned in this era, at least as it related to being uh, principled and countering corruption? I think that's right. I might say spirits adjacent as opposed to spirits aligned. They didn't totally overlap, but you're quite right. When Grover Cleveland is serving as the Democratic governor of New York, Roosevelt is a Republican serving in the legislature. And the Republicans in the New York legislature have this same conflict between the reformist wing that Roosevelt belongs to and uh, another faction called the Black Hat Cavalry, which is actually a bipartisan group that was basically intent on defending the kind of New York spoils system. And Cleveland and Roosevelt did make common cause on good government reforms at this time. They also uh, occasionally clashed. There's a, a vignette in the book that stems from the fact that Cleveland was a good lawyer, which meant that he was a little fussy at times. And Roosevelt had shepherded through some legislation uh, for reforms to city government in New York City, which Cleveland agreed with him on. But Roosevelt had done a sloppy job on the draftsmanship, little things like the same office having two separate term lengths in the legislation. And Cleveland tells him, Mr. Roosevelt, I have to veto this. And Roosevelt, any fan of Roosevelt, will be able to picture the scenes of Roosevelt hopping with electricity in quasi-biblical terms, telling Cleveland, you cannot do this, you must not do this. Grover Cleveland, a man of a very different disposition, just sits there, bangs his fist on the table and says, Mr. Roosevelt, I will do this. And Teddy Roosevelt is recorded to have fallen back in his chair at this behavior one would not normally associate with Theodore Roosevelt. And Cleveland's one of Cleveland's aides records this as being indicative of the kinds of interactions they had, comparing Cleveland to a great stoic mastiff and Roosevelt to a, an overactive terrier. <laughs> so that was the the tension in their relationship. But yes, for the most part, they they did work together to common cause more often than not when they were both serving in state government. And certainly, year. people reformers in a day where the country really wanted some reform and 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 corruption and kind of the old way of doing business needed needed to be scrutinized and, and, and changed and, and both pursued it. Um, I don't want to go too deep into Cleveland without you explain to us your real personal connection, Troy, to Cleveland. Cause you, you outlined in the beginning, the, the, the principal kind of thoughtful intellectual reason why you, you, you jumped into this, but it was also a little bit of history, personal history with Cleveland. Uh, share, share with us uh, when you fir your first encounter with Grover Cleveland, what, what became perhaps, I don't know if you use this word exactly, but an obsession. <laughs> I don't think I use it, but it's, it, I'm not saying it's unfair. <laughs> um, I think what you're referring to is in the, in the acknowledgements of the book, I tell a story about the fact that my, my father was a, a teacher. And so when I was a child, the standing rule in our home was that you can have any book that you want, as long as you read it all the way through, that's what you have to do before you get the next one. And for whatever reason, um, in my youth and by youth i mean like elementary school youth i developed 
this fascination with the American presidents. There was a book on the American presidency that my poor father had to rebind three times. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I don't know why this would happen to a nine or 10 year old or whatever I was at the time. I developed a, a particular enthusiasm for some of the more obscure ones. And even in my you know, fractured partial understanding as a, as a child, there was something about Cleveland. You, I got this sense of the integrity at work there that I found I found really compelling. And so the the first encounter that I think you're referring to is when I was a when I was a teenager. The first time I because I'm, I'm from Southern California, the first time that we traveled to the Northeast, I sort of insisted that my parents take us by Coswell, New Jersey, yeah. of all places, side of the Grover Cleveland birthplace. You're 16 years old, the right? That exists. You're 16 years old right. and, and you're not, you're not trying to go to Man Square Garden or Yankee Stadium or Broadway. You want to get to Grover Cleveland's <laughs> birthplace. <laughs> That's right. And I succeeded, but not without some duress. Uh, because when we arrived there, it was too late in the day. They had actually closed it already, but there was a little sign up on the side of the building where you could call the superintendent. I don't know what the term would be. My mother called it. And this wonderful woman who I've subsequently found since writing the book still works there, <laughs> came by personally and opened it up for us. And we got a private tour of the Grover Cleveland birthplace. So Is she getting a first copy of this book? A little. Are you sending her a copy of this book with a handwritten note? She deserves it. I mean, she got a and, and tri great lesson for everybody. Who knows what happens when you open the door after the store closes? Because you know you end up getting a book for it. <laughs> she has. In fact, she got two. Okay. <laughs> let me let me go to something else here, Troy. Uh, before we jump into Cleveland's politics, because you hit on this before, something I was not familiar with in, until reading the book, which is how much of a modern conservative U.S. politics, you know, Grover Cleveland was as a, as a Democrat uh, during, you know, his time in office. We'll get to that in a moment. But before we go there, you're talking about Grover Cleveland's birthplace. You can still go there. But if you travel across the country and you're looking for a monument or memorial, I mean, you're pretty unhappy about this in your book about Grover Cleveland, you go to great pains to say there is nothing. You're not even asking for like his face on Rushmore. You're not so bold. You're just looking for one memorial. I mean, like this is the forgotten president. And, you know, your, your book is bookended by essentially, you know, saying this is just wrong. And, you know, make the case for us right now why this man should have a memorial in Washington, D.C. I guess he was he had an opportunity to be on the $1,000 bill or maybe the $20 bill, and then uh, just uh, a Secretary of Treasury, Mellon, I guess, got in the way of it. But, I mean, it's almost, you know, you feel this is almost tragic. Take, take us through this. Yeah, so, I mean, to give you a representative sense of the state of affairs, <laughs> um, the most recent news story you can find about the Grover Cleveland birthplace in Caldwell, New Jersey, th this is the only place in the local press, there was a story that said, this was the actual headline, that house across the street from Dunkin' Donuts, a president was born there. So the Dunkin' Donuts is the more significant landmark in Caldwell, <laughs> New Jersey. 
Um, he need not necessarily have a, a monument in Washington, D.C., but I do think that he should be better remembered. And, and you made the reference to the the $1,000 bill. That's included in the book partially to let people know he used to be better remembered. In the first half of the 20th century, if you look at the, I believe it's the 1948 Arthur Schlesinger poll, Cleveland is ranked as the eighth greatest president of all time. He's between John Adams and Teddy Roosevelt. And yes, he was originally proposed for the 20, and then they put him on the $1,000 bill. They swapped him with Jackson. So the question is, why has he been forgotten in the interim? And part of my argument in the book is that the way that we rate presidents is unfair to most people who have ever held the presidency. It's a very modern conception of the presidency. Um, It's focused on what we could call an activist mindset, really the idea of a president aggressively shepherding legislation through Congress, the president being an aggressive foreign policy leader, the president being a visionary, the president being a rhetorical model using the the bully pulpit in, in Roosevelt's locution, all of which is perfectly fine for about the past hundred years of American history. And my argument is that prior to that, with a few exceptions, and really almost exclusively exceptions driven by crisis, like Washington or, or Lincoln, and maybe Jackson, who actually in a weird way fits the activist model more. Uh, this doesn't really apply, because in that era, presidents were not bestriding the world as foreign policy leaders. They weren't, for the most part, major rhetorical leaders. They had sort of a passive, hands-off approach to Congress more often than not, but again, not universally. So the question that I posed to the reader early on in the book is, how do you judge the greatness of these men? And my argument is, well, you have to judge them according to the standards of their time. And for Cleveland, the standard was more of an ombudsman, more of a check on the Congress, more of somebody who was an advocate on behalf of the electorate, as opposed to a party leader who was trying to make nice with all the factions in the Democratic Party. And I think the integrity with which he did that is argument enough, as you say, not that he be on Mount Rushmore, but that he be considered in that maybe 1B or 2A tier of presidents who maybe don't have the sweeping accomplishment that you remember forever, but that we regard as distinctive, as special, as set apart. From you go further. In your book, you make an argument that goes beyond that almost, Troy, because he had opportunities in his presidency, during his presidency, to actually do the things that could have made him more well remembered on the you know in the, in the metrics that you've just kind of articulated you know uh hawaii cuba uh the gold standard certain things that he declined to do because of his outlook which we'll get into uh in some respects worked against him being remembered as this presidency who accomplished great things for the country talk a little about that yeah, well, this this is something that I mentioned in service of a, of a bigger point that I think is key to understanding Cleveland and his times, which is that, strangely enough, there are eras of American history, and I would put the founding generation in this category, I would put the Civil War in this category, that are further removed from us than Cleveland's era, but that we understand better because the fights of those eras were over principles that are clearly intelligible to us now. Um, 
the Gilded Age in some ways is, is more unfamiliar because of what the issues were. I mean, if I were to go through the list of the major things that Grover Cleveland dealt with in his first term in particular, we'd be talking about military pensions. We'd be talking about the civil service. We'd be talking about tariff reform, things that for the most part sound completely alien mm-hmm. to the world of 2022. And as you quite rightly point out, my argument in the book is that a number of things that he chose not to do because of his principles would actually have made his legacy much clearer to us because they do graft in a cleaner fashion onto our modern understanding of of the world and of history. In his second term, he opposes uh, an effort to annex Hawaii. He is uh, deeply offended and sort of grieved by what has happened because the diplomatic representatives of the previous administration had been essentially complicit in a coup overthrowing the Hawaiian monarchy. Cleveland was deeply anti-imperialist. He was really offended by this. He inherits in his first term a treaty that would have built a transoceanic canal across Nicaragua. This would have been the Panama Canal before the Panama Canal. And by the way, he likes this idea. He thinks that this is a, a great prospect for economic development. But again, anti-imperialist and also somebody who just wants America to maintain its neutrality, Nicaragua would have had to have been a protectorate if we did this. He didn't want to commit the country that way. Same thing. We don't we don't at all need to get into the depths of 19th century monetary policy, but just suffice to say that the fight within the Democratic Party is over whether you stick with the gold standard or whether you push silver into the economy. Boy, he would have been much more popular with his party if he had been on the silver side. That's where all the action and all the energy was. Probably would have been economically disastrous, at least if it had been taken to the extremes that the people in his party wanted it to be taken to. But again, there's a there's a clear, compelling historical narrative if you do that. This is the guy who's taking up arms to combat the inequality of the era. He didn't do these things, and he didn't do them because he thought they were wrong. It was more important for him to keep faith with his principles than to build what we'd now call a legacy, a thought that just never crosses his mind. And and, and the other piece of it, which is kind of to counter your arguments why he should remember if we contextualize him in his time and his era. I mean, he was the last kind of Democrat to actually take these, you know, set of views, right? Um, in terms of laissez-faire, free market. As you point out, he succeeded, I mean, after his second term, by Republicans, you know, for the presidencies to follow. And you never really see a Democrat in office again, at least in the White House, taking up Grover Cleveland's political outlook. Uh, Talk about that, because ultimately, you know, the Democratic Party left him. Kind of what Ronald Reagan said once. That, that's right. You get the you sometimes get the glib shorthand that well the parties switched at some point in the past, which is way 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 oversimplified. But to the extent to which there's any truth to that Cleveland is the end of the line. He is the last sort of Jeffersonian limited government classical liberal, and he is up against a growing populism in his party. You see it most explicitly on this issue about um, about money, about monetary policy, but you also see it in regards to unions. Um, you also see it in regard to a, a growing sense that corporations are amassing too much power and maybe some key industries should be nationalized. And in his time, that is happening more from a, a breakaway populist party than from actually within the Democratic Party. 
but it's interesting. You know, there's this temptation now to draw all these parallels between Grover Cleveland and, and Donald Trump because of the what looks likely to be the mutual pursuit of a, of a third term. And actually, if you put them in their historical uh, context, they're actually sort of opposites insofar yeah. as Trump is sort of a revolutionary figure coming into a Republican Party that is a little more oriented towards the classical liberal side, making it more populist. Cleveland is the opposite. He is sort of a counter-revolutionary at a moment when the Democratic Party is losing that classical liberalism, and he's trying to hold on to it trying ultimately unsuccessfully because William Jennings Bryan, the great tribune of the populace, ends up being the Democratic presidential nominee three of the next four cycles after Cleveland goes away. And it's probably worth pointing out because people do seem to be interested in these, these parallels, the Trump-Cleveland um, question. One could be forgiven for asking, okay, if this guy won the presidency and then lost it again, and he is defying the base of his party, how on earth does he come back and get nominated a third time and win? And there's a very simple answer to that question, which is that he runs in an age before presidential primaries. He was defying his party on the money question, but the party elites who picked presidential nominees said, thank God, we've got one guy who seems intent on not blowing up the American economic system. We know that's good for some crossover votes. Bring old Grover on back. It's the exact opposite of what somebody would do today if they were right. pursuing a restoration, but it worked for him in 1892. We're talking with Troy Senek about his book coming out in September, A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Let's talk a little bit about Cleveland's just approach to the presidency. There's a really fascinating quote in there uh, from one of Cleveland's successors, Woodrow Wilson. It goes something to the effect of Grover Cleveland was a president that the kind of founders of the writers of the constitution envisioned almost like this was, this was truly the president that the constitution contemplated. And, and this is of course, Wilson yeah. uh, speaking about the presidency before the new deal and, and, and the kind of the regulatory state. So of course the presidency of 2022, it was just, far, far away from what our founders and, and the drafters of the Constitution would have contemplated. But Wilson was saying this, of course, even prior to that. Uh, why don't you kind of explain that quote and, and use that as a launching point to kind of what Cleveland was like in office? Then I kind of want to return to this, the interregnum, the period between the first and second term for Grover Cleveland. Well, we should note, too, that Woodrow Wilson said this before Woodrow Wilson fully became Woodrow Wilson. I mean, because he is a big part of the change in, in the presidency. And uh, it's often forgotten that Wilson, earlier on his, in his career, is, is more of a Clevelandite, is more of a conservative Democrat before he fully moves over and, and in some ways becomes the vanguard of the progressive movement within the Democratic Party. But you're, you're quite right. This is uh, Wilson's sentiment, and ironically, because they ended up being so opposite, Wilson's scholarly write-up of Cleveland's presidency is probably the single best contemporary analysis of it. And what Wilson was on to here was that Cleveland, this is going to sound incredibly simple, but when you put it in the modern context, it's incredibly powerful. Cleveland conceived of the presidency as an executive job. 
He didn't see himself as part of the legislative process. He saw his responsibility as making sure that the executive branch discharged its duties, as making sure that Congress wasn't exploiting the American people. The way he defined exploitation, by the way, there are a couple of constant threads that you see through Grover Cleveland's career, one of which is his conviction, and he says this almost verbatim, that any cent that the federal government spends in excess of its legitimate needs is tantamount to theft from the American people. He's a very aggressive fiscal conservative. He believes, not a full-blown libertarian, he does believe that there are lots of legitimate responsibilities for the federal government, but he sees hard and fast lines around them. The other is he has this career-long obsession with the idea that nobody should get special treatment from the government, that everybody should be treated entirely the same. And this plays out in every possible direction. It plays out in the sense that he does not want any special favors for business interests. In fact, one of the reasons that he's really aggressive about tariff reform is that he believes that tariffs are at their root oftentimes a, a tool of corrupt corporate power. The right company gets the right deal to get the right kind of tariffs. By the way, if our listeners are wondering why everybody made such a big deal about tariffs in the late 19th century, a thing that I confess that I myself, when learning American history, was used to be flummoxed by, is because tariffs in that day and age are essentially the equivalent of the income tax today. There was no income tax. That was all where all the federal money revenue came from. That's right. That's right. A, a, a few small other areas, uh, there were surtaxes on things like tobacco and liquor. There were some land sales in the West, but the vast majority of it's coming from tariffs. But at the same time that Cleveland is somebody who doesn't want special favor, favors being given to the business community, he is also somebody who famously says, while vetoing a very modest appropriation to give financial aid to some poor farmers in Texas who have had their crops wiped out due to a drought, that he sees no justification in the Constitution to give that sort of appropriation, and the people have to learn the lesson that while the people should support the government, the government does not support the people. This is a very pre-welfare state mindset of his. He just has this very circumscribed notion of what the federal government should and shouldn't do. Uh, you mentioned vetoes and really having this view of the executive to hold Congress in check, stay true to the Constitution, federalism, let the states take care of anything that's not really kind of explicitly called for in the Constitution. I mean, this was a serial veto type uh, executive. Talk about that for, for a minute. It's it, That was surprising. Grover Cleveland, between his two terms, vetoes 584 bills. Uh, 414 of these in the in the first term alone. And I should note that um, when you hear those raw numbers, you assume that this is just him doing battle with an adversarial Congress. Uh, and at times it was, but there are two years of his presidency where Democrats have the majorities in Congress, and there are another four years where congressional control uh, is split. It just really came down to the fact that he was trying to patrol federal expenditures and, and do right by the taxpayers. I mentioned earlier that one of the big issues is military pensions, how quaint that sounds in the year 2022. But again, to put it in a, an understandable context, it was uh, not in terms of scale, but in terms of where it ranked in federal expenditures at the time, patrolling military pensions in Grover Cleveland's day and age 
is the equivalent of being concerned about entitlements today. This was the second biggest expenditure from the federal government. No, it's after the and Civil the War, right? So you 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 have a That's lot of right. people who are expect, expecting and in, in, in need of that that pension. That's when the Veteran Affairs started. You know, the administration. That's. That that's right. And so what happens, you're living in a world where union veterans are getting federal pensions. Confederate veterans are not. They may be getting them from southern state governments, exclusively union. And there's a mission creep that sort of we recognize from modern entitlement programs, which is it starts off very modest. If you were injured in the course of duty and you can no longer carry on with your normal tasks in life, you're entitled to a pension. And maybe some are so are some of your immediate dependents. Then it becomes well, actually, if you haven't claimed it yet, you can go back and claim it in arrears, which can become a windfall. Decades have passed, and there's a huge spike in applications, many of them dubious. Uh, after that, this is between Cleveland's two terms, it becomes, if you have any disability and you serve, regardless of whether it has anything to do with your service, you can come get a pension. Explodes the federal budget, which was precisely what Cleveland was worried about. And he was so dedicated to this that he would personally inspect all of these claims himself. And as I detail in the book, there are some insane claims that come up. If you read through his vetoes, you will find him saying, this guy can't say that he has sore eyes as a result of diarrhea and is thus entitled to a pension. This guy can't say that he broke his leg while picking flowers and is thus entitled to a pension. And it seems funny and it seems small. And in a way it is, that was a criticism at the time that this was kind of humbuggery on his part. Maybe that's fair. But Cleveland thought that there was a bigger principle at work here, which is that it was a distinction of honor to be on the union pension roll. It meant that you had done something serious for your country in an hour of maximum need and that it was disrespectful and disgraceful to let people who are engaging in common fraud live alongside those union veterans on the pension rolls. That was really what was driving his conviction there. So you're talking about this figure, integrity, check, principled, check. But you're reading this and you're like, there's no way someone like this should ever be elected. And if they're elected once, be elected again because it just is not the type of person that can make the wheels of politics turn. And then you describe he he loses uh, the reelect. He has a popular vote, but Harrison comes in, and he actually just to emphasize a point I just made. He actually admires his successor. He is so almost apolitical and unwilling to engage in the in the the kind of the partisanship that we all expect in the context of a presidential election, no less. And this former president seems to go return to New York and upstate New York and kind of, I mean, what I read to me, just kind of perfectly happy to be out of the public light, be back, return to private life. And okay, the book should have closed and the anomaly of Cleveland as president of the United States has come and gone. And yet, Troy, He's back. He makes a speech to the University of Michigan. You described earlier the power brokers because there wasn't a, a convention of the kind that we have today. And they say, well, he's our man because he's not going to screw it all up. And then he gets elected again. There has to be something going on that such an apolitical type figure finds himself elected twice after just not doing anything to help himself. That's the way it read to me. 
Yeah, that's right. There's, I think there's a macro principle that you can trace throughout his career. And then there's a development that is specific to that election of, of 1892. Uh, the, the macro one being, remember, we're talking about the post-Civil War era here, which is an era of Republican dominance after the Civil War. And I make the argument in the book, which I don't think is a particularly controversial one, that the Republican Party had such sweeping control of the federal government that they succumbed to something like political gout. Times were too good. This is what happens a lot of times when, as you've seen a lot of states, when one party controls everything. Things get corrupt. Things fall by the wayside. Real sense, the Republican Party had, had started, at least factions within the Republican Party, had gotten very corrupt and that there was a rot setting in. So Cleveland, with this emphasis on good government and integrity, is seen as a tonic to this, which is a big part of the rise throughout his career. But in 1892, for that comeback, there is something uh, more specific at work. Because, of course, by 1892, the fact that Cleveland is like this is old news. We've already had him in the White House for four years. We kind of get it. The, the, the factor at work is that Cleveland really pushes on the tariff for the first time on tariff reform late in his first term in what is, uh, as a matter of political calculation, utter, utterly baffling. <laughs> it's a weird thing to go into your reelection on because at the time it divided his party. So the idea of going into a presidential reelection and picking something that unifies the opposition and divides your party, not great strategy, generally speaking, <laughs> and a part of his loss. In, in that 1888 race, what worked to his advantage was that in the interim, in the four years in between when Benjamin Harrison had been president, tariffs had been raised significantly, and there was a huge backlash amongst the American people because of the increase in prices that it led to. So the guy who had looked like a fool five years before now all of a sudden looks prescient. And that was the other ingredient in getting him back into office with the 1892 election. So the circumstances, almost like he was, uh, like everything else in this story, it just kind of bounced his way surprisingly because he was, you know, the, doing what he thought was a principled right thing to do, which was a political mistake, ended up, uh, you know, correcting itself because he, he he turned out to be correct, at least as it relates to this tariff. Fascinating discussion. Yes, we're on Reaganism podcast, but we're talking uh, Grover Cleveland today. Um you know, so you read this book, we have this conversation, Troy Senek, and you're like, okay, Grover Cleveland, right? He had two terms in office, but you know, uh, wasn't have con was not consecutive terms, parallel to perhaps what Donald Trump may or may not do if he were to seek uh, another term in office. But that's almost like where the parallels end. Perhaps maybe with the exception of you had the Gilded Age where where Cleveland's operating and 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 you know we've, we're we're on the cusp of a recession here, uh, but we did have this era of prosperity, you know, prior to COVID, and, and some you know the, the you know people say this is a uh, you know a gilded age for the 21st century. But is there anything else, Troy, uh, that really where the parallel between uh, America today and America then uh, applies uh, beyond this kind of just possibility that we could find ourselves with a pres another president with ter two terms, but not in sequence? I think there's one, and I don't want to overstate it because how tight this parallel runs to some degree depends on things that we haven't yet seen resolved. And the similarity is both in terms of events on the ground and in terms of the 
political dynamics of the era. There is a feeling that the center is not holding. Um, there was a kind of paranoia on the win, because remember, at this point, we're only depending on when in Cleveland's presidency you're talking about, 20, 30 years removed from the Civil War. And there was a real concern that another conflict on that scale could break out. Um, there were some concerns about that when Cleveland is first elected, because he's first Democrat after the Civil War. And Blacks, free Blacks in the South are concerned. Another Democrat comes back. That means that slavery is coming back. That, of course, was all based on a misunderstanding of, of who Grover Cleveland was. But there are also these massive labor uprisings in the 1890s, including the Pullman strike, which I, I write at length about in the book. We don't need to go into the details of that, but it is worth knowing this is this massive, not quite nationwide, but huge regional shutdown of almost all commerce in the country. And there is a real concern that at that point, we we're going to have a civil war fought on class terms. It's going to right. be labor versus capital. It obviously doesn't come to pass, but it is a real alive concern for people of the era. And the other thing you see this in uh, is the politics of the day. If you, if you read through the accounts of the three and a half really presidential elections that are chronicled in this book, what you'll notice is how many factions are showing up, how many breakaway parties there are. There's a prohibitionist party that's taking votes away from the Republicans. There's a greenbacker party that ends up becoming the populist party, taking votes away from um, the Democrats. And there is this reshuffling of the deck that's happening, which ends up, you know, in the decades to follow, leading to a, a realignment in American politics. And as you alluded to earlier, the next president who dispositionally and policy-wise looks kind of like Cleveland, uh, at least within hailing distance, is Taft, who's a Republican. And this, all, all of these different threads within the parties are migrating between or getting spliced and remixed in, in other parties. And um, I don't want to too confidently say that that's what's happening now. I don't know whether it is, but one does get the sense that there is that kind of froth at the moment and that things are resorting themselves. Great point. Uh, super interesting. Before we go to the lightning round, one matter to settle in this book. Uh, Ronald Reagan does not figure heavily here. Yes. Uh, he, um, you may reference other presidents, FDR, of course, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, in terms of presidents who get their due, Cleveland being an example of one who does not. Uh, and then one of the arguments you make in addressing this, kind of picking up what we, we were talking about earlier, was, well, the reality is, and you quote uh, a psychologist here, don't have his name in front of me, where he said, by the year 2060, this is a quote, not your words, this is the psychologist you're quoting, Americans will probably remember as much about the 39th and 40th presidents known to all our listeners, but uh, you, it, the quote says, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, as they now remember about the 13th president, Millard Fillmore. And to that, I have to say, really? <laughs> well, I'm with you on this, but I should explain the point that he's trying to make, because this is based on research that he's done about the fact that um, Americans actually don't tend to retain most presidents in memory. There's generally three categories of presidents that Americans know, which is the first few, the most recent, and Abe Lincoln. And that's it. Even the Andy Jacksons and Teddy Roosevelt sometimes show up less often than you'd think. I don't think that there is a, a, a good case to make that 
Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan are going to have the same staying power in the uh, psyche of the American public. Uh, but I think that gets to a, a bigger point about how we think about presidents and presidential legacies, which it is always wrong, in my estimation, for historians and pundits to make pronouncements this prematurely. We almost never know what a president's legacy is going to look like during his presidency. I would argue that we rarely know during his lifetime. And I would actually make the argument that the the single best way to think about it is see what people say once everybody who was a contemporary of his is gone. Because there is there is a reductionism to that when somebody can only be judged by the record. Well, fascinating stuff. I'm willing to bet against a psychologist that we, we chat a little bit before uh, we went on the show in, in no part, perhaps due to the emergence of presidential libraries in, in modern America and, and the fact That's that right. the presidents are work to advance legacies during their lifetime and they continue after uh, not the case for Glover Cleveland or presidents uh, for the most part in the 19th century. Let's go to the lightning round. Troy Senek, author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland coming out. Uh, be available on Amazon and elsewhere in September. But we're going to make this author on Cleveland talk about Ronald Reagan. Share with us your favorite book on Reagan, speech or quote. Uh, I, can give, I can give you one of each, actually. So my, my favorite book is uh, How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life by Peter Robinson. Uh, I cannot claim any objectivity here because I used to work for Peter. Peter's a friend, but also Peter started as a Reagan speechwriter at 25. I started as a Bush speechwriter at 24. So I'm very sympathetic to that vantage point on understanding a presidency. Uh, my favorite quote, you know, I went to graduate school at Pepperdine, just down the road from where the Reagan Library is. And if you go up to the top of that campus, there's a great overlook of Malibu. And there is a stone there that has carved in it the Reagan quote that freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream, which you would know better than I. But I think is a quote that actually has its origins all the way back in the radio addresses and then sort of weaves its way through a series of speeches afterwards. And as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about history, I just find that quote deeply meaningful because it, it gets to an essential truth, which is that we can take things for granted because we've known the world no other way during our lifetimes. And these things are inherently contingent. I mean, you and I are recording this conversation the day after Queen Elizabeth passed away. And it's remarkable to hear all of these Britons say we could never imagine a world without her. Well, she was a 96-year-old woman. It's relatively easy to imagine a world <laughs> without her. But but you, you take my point. There's a reason for that. This had been a yeah. constant for them. And one does tend to esteem too lightly these things that have just been taken as givens throughout your existence. So I think it's one of Reagan's most powerful quotes. And finally, on the speech, you know, there are so many great Reagan speeches and so many that get cited often. And it's not that it's obscure, but I'm always surprised by how infrequently people point to the farewell address relative to some of the other speeches. Um, I, th I think it is a beautiful speech. I also think it is a deeply democratic, little d democratic speech. One of the things that I really appreciate about those remarks, especially when the the president says, they always called me a great communicator, but I thought it was the ideas I was communicating that were great. There's a very 70s 
selfless posture adopted there, a sense that the president of the United States, the most powerful station in the country, nevertheless, that the man who holds that job is just a torchbearer. It's transitory. It is an office that is permanent, not a person. And I have always found that speech delightful for that reason. And also it is so, it's become a cliche to talk about the optimism of Ronald Reagan, but there is a fundamental optimism to that speech. And uh, it always struck me funny. This has died off a little over the years, but for years and years after he left the White House, Republicans would always exhort each other to be optimistic. And what they usually translated to was just talking about being optimistic. It was weirdly <laughs> this rhetorical exhortation. And when you're watching Reagan, when you're listening to those speeches, it is in his bones. There is just a, a cheerfulness in there, which is, a, I think, an inherently American quality. And I have this little political shorthand that the guy who's going to win the election is always the guy who looks like he's having the better time. Mm -hmm. I just think Americans always respond to that smile. If they feel it's in earnest, they always respond to that cheerfulness. And I think that that is why Ronald Reagan was met with the kind of reception he was during his presidency, and I think it's a big part of why he has maintained a legacy of the scale that he has, in addition to his substantive accomplishments. And I would expect that to last way beyond 2060. Troy Senek, thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> thank you, sir. Much appreciated. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.